I'd like to invite your attention to the fourth chapter of Daniel. And once again, we will read the entirety of the chapter together. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, in, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let, let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, El Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beast of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, you have grown, who, you, who have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Father, Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Father, this is a story that if it weren't in Scripture, would be hard to believe. But Father, it demonstrates a couple of things. It demonstrates the proud have no place in your kingdom. And it demonstrates that you are sovereign over all. Father, in the book of Daniel, we see that you display, you exhibit, you show your sovereignty 
by attacking several different areas. And that's the case this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to focus in on your word. Father, if we were in your physical presence, as it were, if Jesus was before us this morning, we would pay rapt attention. But Father, we are in your presence this morning. And I pray that we would give that same kind of attention. Lord, if there is one here this morning who's battling pride, smash it. May they deal with it before you deal with it. Nebuchadnezzar was given a year to deal with it. He didn't, and you did. Father, for those who are wondering whether or not you truly are sovereign when they see what's happening in their lives or they, in the lives of others, may this be an encouragement to them this morning that you are indeed sovereign over all. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the focus on the opening chapters of the book of Daniel have been split between Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and his three friends, Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And now as we come to chapter 4, the focus or the spotlight is on Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he has reached the zenith of his power. He has achieved a success on a grand scale, and he is widely acknowledged as the king of the earth. When we first encountered Nebuchadnezzar, he had besieged the city of Jerusalem. He had succeeded in raiding the temple of the people of Israel, and he was successful in carrying away the sacred instruments and vessels that were used in the worship of Israel's God. And he took them and he placed them in his own treasury. That action was deliberate because it was designed to show the people of Israel that he and the false gods of Babylon were stronger than they and the God of Israel. And it was the first step in his efforts to assimilate them into the culture and the religion of Babylon. It was an important step in his efforts to turn them into Babylonians and help to, uh, in making them forget that they were Israelites. And right away, there's a, there's a lesson for us to learn. As believers, as disciples of Christ, we must be aware that this fallen world that we live in has the same goal. They would like nothing better than to make us forget that we are strangers and aliens in this world and to have us forsake our unique identity that we have in Christ and as a consequence convert us, as it were, to thinking and living like they do. Then in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this very strange dream about this magnificent statue that had the, the head of gold, it had the chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs were of bronze, the legs were of iron, the feet were a mixture of iron and in clay. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw this uh, huge stone that was cut out without hands, and this stone smashed into the statue with the head of gold and completely destroyed it. And its destruction was so thorough that there was no trace of it to be found. 
The dream obviously was upsetting to the king, and so he called in the wise man, and he demanded two things from them. First of all, he demanded that they tell him the dream. Second, he demanded that they tell him the interpretation of the dream. And if they could not do those two things, what was he going to do? He said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Literally, I'm going to hack you to pieces, and then I'm going to destroy your homes. Well, God, having shown the inferiority of the wise men who supposedly were in touch with the false gods of Babylon, God gave Daniel both the knowledge of the dream as well as the interpretation of the dream. And the meaning of the dream was this, that God would destroy all earthly human kingdoms and he would replace them with his own eternal kingdom of which, he says, there will be no end. The head of gold obviously went to the head of Nebuchadnezzar because in chapter 3, we have the account of him building a 90-foot tall statue covered with gold. And then with the threat of death hanging over, the heads, uh, over their heads, the king commanded all peoples, nations, and languages to fall down and worship this idol. Everyone did so except, except excuse me, three men. And they were Daniel's three friends. And they had been given the Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men stated in no uncertain terms that whatever the king threatened them with, they would not bow down to his image. And if God did not deliver them and they were cast into the flames, so be it. They were not going to bow down. Well, the band played again. And again, they did not bow down. God delivered them, not from the flames, but in the flames. That forced the king to ultimately acknowledge that there was no other God who was able to save his people like he did. And again, let me give you a reminder here. As Christians, it's, 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 we need to remember that despite the circumstances that we may find ourselves facing, God is able to deliver us as he determines, and that's key. As I said last week, it's not up to us to define how God delivers us. What we rest upon is the fact that God does deliver us. So the scholars tell us that about another 20 years have passed, and the king, again, was at the height of his power. His time on the battlefield had come to an end. He has conquered many nations, including Egypt and Israel and Tyre. And every time that he conquered a nation, he would uh, enrich his own treasury. And he used these spoils of war to make the city of Babylon one of the wonders of the ancient world. Now, chapter 4 is a little different in the fact that it's an open letter from King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations of earth. And Another thing that is startling about chapter 4 is the confession that he makes, both as he opens the letter and closes the letter. What is so startling is the fact that the once, the man who once thought he was all-powerful, that was more powerful than the God of Israel, makes really what is a staggering confession. He confesses that God is sovereign and he's not sovereign. Notice how he opens the letter. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. Now, 
Keep in mind, this guy's out for world domination. And what's he say here? Peace be multiplied to you. Something has happened to this man. Peace be multiplied to you. It has, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now just keep in mind everything that this guy's already done. I mean, he just threw three men into the fire because they wouldn't bow down to his God. And then he says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Again, this is a stunning confession of a man who up until this point in his life believed that he and the false gods that he served were all powerful, that he couldn't be challenged. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what event, what has transpired in his life that has obviously humbled him and led him to make this confession. The fact that he confesses the greatness and the sovereignty of Daniel's God. He confesses the sovereignty and the greatness of the God of Israel. What has happened? He had a dream. He had a dream. And what a dream it was. So let's pick up the story right there. A wave of contentment has washed over Nebuchadnezzar as he sat on his throne and he's reflecting on all of his accomplishments. In the words of... Uh, Joe Walsh, life has been good to him so far. He may have been content, but any contentment that is achieved apart from God is always going to be short-lived. And God was about to shatter his contentment and teach him two very important lessons. Lesson one, God was going to show Nebuchadnezzar who he truly was. God was going to show Nebuchadnezzar that he was just a man, that he was not the king of the earth, that he was not all-powerful, and that indeed he was not in control at all. Second lesson, God was going to show Nebuchadnezzar who he, meaning God, really was. He was going to show the king that he was not only the king of the earth, he was the king of the universe. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn a couple of hard lessons. And again, there's a lesson for us to learn here as Christians. We better be careful about claiming for ourselves the glory that rightly and solely belongs to God. Many times, God will deal with that if we are guilty of that by sending something into our life to teach us who we truly are and to show us who he truly is. It's a dangerous thing to take credit for the work of God. We always want to give glory to God. Well, as the king lays down next to his wife, he couldn't help but smile as he reveled in his success. Again, he was widely acknowledged at that day and time as the most powerful man alive. Life was good, no worries, he thought to himself, as he drifted off to sleep. But his sleep that night would not turn out to be one of peace. In fact, it would be anything but peaceful. In his own words, he says that the dream that he saw made him afraid and the visions in his head alarmed him. Keep in mind again who this is. We're talking about the man who's considered to be the most powerful man alive, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He has had nation after nation bow before him, but yet he sees this dream and it makes him afraid. Now, I wonder if he thought to himself, here we are again with these dreams. And just like the other dream, he responds the same way. He must know what the meaning of the dream is. So he issues this decree that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before him to interpret his vision. 
Well, what happens? Well, it's the second verse, same as the first. They couldn't interpret the dream. This time they knew what the dream was, but they still were clueless. They had no idea what the dream meant. They were once again exposed as the frauds that they were. Now look at verse 8. At last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God in whom the spirit, in, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying. So what does the king see in his dream? Well, he tells Daniel that as the dream begins, it starts out pleasantly enough because he sees this tree. It's, it's tall. It's straight. It reaches to the heavens. It's full of limbs that are full of leaves. That are, these limbs are full of fruit. It's a pleasant dream. The tree reached to the heavens, and he says it's visible to the whole earth. The beast of the fields found respite from the sun underneath of its shade. The tree was filled with birds, and the tree was so productive that all flesh was fed from it. So at this point, so far, so good. But the dream is about to turn into a nightmare. In fact, it's about to turn into a Stephen King horror novel. Because in the vision, he says that he sees a watcher. That's just an ominous term, isn't it? A watcher. A holy one come down from heaven. Say, well, who was the watcher? Simply God's messenger. God's messenger. And the message that he came was truly terrifying. Verse 14, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now notice the shift here. This is what, this is what bothers him. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let, it, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. And just as the statue in his first dream came crashing to the ground, so too this tall, straight, strong tree is also going to be crashing to the ground. So the watcher issues the command to cut down the tree, lop off all of its branches, strip off all of its leaves, and scatter the fruit. Now see the picture here. The tree that once fed all flesh would be good for nothing. No Shelter, no shade, no sustenance. Good for nothing at all. But strangely, the watcher says that the stump is to be left in the ground and is to be protected with bands of bronze and iron. Mean, that was a means of protecting whatever was left of the tree. And leaving the stump is a sign of hope. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah wrote, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of, not Nebuchadnezzar, but Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the stump that Isaiah talks about comes from the royal tree of David. But out of that stump would come a branch who would be the great son of David, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, suddenly the vision takes another terrifying term. Turn, excuse me, the, no longer is a tree being talked about. The watcher begins to describe what's going to happen to him, to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 16. Let his mind be changed. This is, this, this is terrifying. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. 
This magnificent tree that had been visible to the entire earth was going to be cut down. It represents a person, and he understands, I'm that person. That's why he's so terrified. As one commentator said, the person who sheltered animals will himself turn into an animal. The most powerful person on the face of the earth would be wet with the morning dew. The one who had a daily feast fit for a king would soon be turned out to eating the grass of the field. He'd become like a beast of the field, and he'd graze with the beast of the field. But not only would his appetite be changed, his mind would be changed. His, his mind would be changed into the mind of a beast, and he would stay this way until God's work was accomplished in his life. That's what the seven periods of time refer to, a time of completion. When God's work was finished, his mind would return to him. Say, but why is this happening? This, this seems rather extreme. Why is all of this happening? Well, look at verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, now notice this, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Let me point out a contrast here in verse 17. Notice that he says, to the end that the living may know that the Most High. Can you get any higher than the Most High? No. That the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and who does he give it to? The lowliest of men. In point of comparison, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, the lowliest of the low in comparison to God. Okay? It's the most high. So why is this happening, the proud Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, So that this once proud king of the earth would come to understand who the most high is. That he is the one who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and again sets it over the lowliest of men. Now listen, verse 17 is maybe the key sentence in the chapter because of the decree. And the decree was that the living, and we can flesh that out a little bit and say this. We can say all the living, all the powerful, all the self-important, all the leaders of business, all the leaders of government, the rich, the poor, the high, the mighty, the celebrity, and the lowliest of the low. This happened so that all would know that the most high God is sovereign. It's as simple as that. St. Clair Ferguson says, when we declare the sovereignty of God, we are emphasizing God is God. That's a great definition of God's sovereignty. God is God. Consequently, no truth about God is more likely to evoke either humility or rebellion. He goes on to say the purpose of this decree was not left to Nebuchadnezzar's imagination. It was to teach men that God reigns, that he sets up and pulls down kingdoms, that his actions in history focus on the work of humbling men in order that they may dispense with their foolish pride and acknowledge him as their God. If there was ever a message that needs to be heard today, that is it. That is it. And I couldn't help but think of Paul's words to, in the book of Romans, in the book of Philippians, Romans 14, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Philippians 2, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. 
I always think of those who openly mock God, that one day they will bow. The pseudo-celebrity, the celebrity wannabe, the comedian who mocks God, the actors who mock God, the politicians who mock God, the athletes who mock God, you will bow down one day. You will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, hearing up, upon hearing the contents of the dream, Daniel, the text says, was dismayed. And now he, too, is alarmed. Say, why would Daniel be alarmed? <laughs> well, remember, Nebuchadnezzar has repeatedly shown himself to be a man that has a violent temper. He has the reputation of shooting the messenger first and then trying to ask questions later. And so Daniel's probably thinking to himself, I know how this guy operates. So what is his response going to be when I tell him that he's going to lose both his kingdom and his mind? He may lose his mind right then. But I think it's interesting that we see something of a, the evolution of the relationship between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar takes notice that Daniel's upset. And so he says to him, don't let the dream or its interpretation terrify you. And then notice how Daniel tries to soften the blow for the king. The end of verse 19, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. I don't know to what degree the relationship between the two men had evolved, but it's obvious that Daniel, at the very least, cared for Nebuchadnezzar. And Dan Daniel then proceeds to give him the meaning of the dream and to say it's not good is an understatement. The thrust of the message was that you'll be removed from your throne, you will lose your sanity, you'll be driven away from this beautiful city that you've built, and that you will live with the beast of the field. In fact, he will become like the beast of the field. If there's any good news at all, if there's a silver lining at all, it is that the punishment from the Most High will be limited. Daniel says that this will last seven times, meaning that his punishment will last an indefinite, but a complete period of time. So do we know what it was? I have no idea. That's not the important point. But when would this time be complete? When he came to the knowledge that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. When he came to realize that he may thought that he was the king of the earth, but he's not, and God is the king of the universe. And then, upon delivering the bad news, Daniel offers some wise counsel to the king. Verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What's Daniel doing here? He's calling him to repentance. Repent, you still have time. This hasn't taken place. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity, but you've got to repent, king. I think there are two sins in particular 
that Daniel was pointing to. One is explicit, the other's implicit. The implicit was Nebuchadnezzar's pride. His pride. I mean, it's obvious in his words and his, his actions. He's a very prideful man, and he took credit for things that he shouldn't have been taken credit for. But then, specifically, Daniel encouraged him to repent of one of his most visible and heinous sins. What was that? He was an oppressor of peoples, and he would not show them mercy. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Nebuchadnezzar, like so many others, when called to repent, ignore the counsel. They choose to disregard it. And this shows you the hardness and the spiritual death of the human heart because here's Daniel, a man who Nebuchadnezzar obviously trusted. And here's Daniel who obviously cared for the king. And he offers him this advice. He offers them this counsel. Break off. Repent. Cease from your sinning. And there's no hint in the text that Nebuchadnezzar even thinks about that for a moment. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of, a, of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, now mark this, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This guy hasn't learned a thing. He's not learned a thing. And what is so striking here is that God, as an act of grace, has given him 12 months to repent. He's given him 12 months to consider his actions. He's given him 12 months to think it through and to stop. But when the king least expected it, the time was up, and immediately God's judgment fell. That's the danger of fooling around with God, of putting it off. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You don't know that you'll be awake tomorrow morning. You don't know. The instant the king brags about his accomplishments and gives himself the glory, he loses his mind. He's driven from his kingdom. He's driven out of his mind. He became like a beast of the field. Again, Ferguson says Superman has become subhuman. And the one who refuses to honor God's glory loses his own glory. If you ever want to tell somebody what God is like, take them to Jan Daniel chapter 4. Say, why do you say that? Seems pretty rough up until this point. Ah, but the, that's not the end of the story, right? The story doesn't end with the king out in the field. In another act of God's grace, he allows the king's reason to return to him. Say, so how do we know that? Well, look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And now notice, and my reason returned to me. And what happens? And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion, not mine. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. I know firsthand. I had it all. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. Mark that. Here's a guy who's just been out in the field eating grass, his hair's growing out of control, his fingernails look like bird's claws. And what's he say there? For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, what's it say? He is able to humble. Say, why would you take someone here to Daniel chapter 4? Because we see what? We see the sovereignty of God. We do see the judgment of God, but we also see the grace of God. And think about, remember, this was written to the exiles, and what tremendous words of assurance this must have been to the exiles. God has demonstrated once again that he, their God, is the sovereign God. He is in control of their captors, which means that he could deliver them from their exile any time that he chose to do so. And guess what he did? He did. See, the narrator's goal was to assure the suffering and the bewildered Israelites that despite appearances, that God is sovereign over earthly kingdoms and gives them to whom he will. Christian, be involved in politics, vote, but do not get all cranked up over the outcome. So do you like what's going on in our country today? I don't like much of it at all. But I don't lose any sleep over it. Why? Because the Most High sets up and he tears down. Well, the book of Daniel is not the only place in Scripture where we see the sovereignty of God. And we see it revealed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see God sending his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world where he would engage the most powerful being on earth. Jesus himself describes Satan as what? The ruler of this world. And as soon as our Lord began his public ministry, Satan attacked him. Matthew chapter 4, again, the devil took him. Now notice how similar this language sounds. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Sound familiar? Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And you know what happened? Jesus not only withstood the temptation, he began to go on the offensive and wage a war of his own. He healed people. He cast out demons. He delivered multitudes out of the kingdom of darkness. But Satan was relentless in his attacks, and he managed to have the Son of God killed by crucifixion. And to many, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. But as one has said, said Satan's kingdom excuse me, Satan's victory was actually his defeat. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered what? Sin and death. 
And from that time forward, the power of Satan was severely limited. Yes, he can still do harm, but he cannot do his worst. Then the book of Revelation tells us that Satan and his demonic host will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will conquer him, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the, now, here's great news. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall what? Reign forever and ever. But we have to be honest. We look around the world today, and we see that the persecution of Christians continues to rise. I read one estimate this week that said that over a quarter of a billion Christians face persecution. And with that many Christians facing persecution, the temptation exists to question the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, if God is loving, why do people suffer as they do? If God is sovereign, why doesn't he rescue his people? Well, there are no easy answers to that question. So what can we do? Well, we look to the scriptures. And when we understand the message of Daniel chapter 4, we are left with absolutely no doubt that God is sovereign over all earthly kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar, gone. Medes and Persians, gone. Greece and Alexander the Great, gone. Caesars and the Roman Empire, gone. Hitler, Stalin, every other dictator, gone. God's kingdom will replace all earthly kingdoms and the new earth will overflow with justice and peace. And I hope that you are beginning to see that God has demonstrated his sovereignty in several ways here in the book. If God wanted to show us that he was just sovereign, he could have written one chapter and left it at that. But he didn't, did he? He shows us in various ways. Say, so why is that important? So that you can take that knowledge and apply it to your situation. See, God uses his sovereignty on behalf of his people for their good and for his glory. And he does so in different ways. And you may be wondering, why does God, God not rescue me from my suffering. Why do I continue to battle this? Why do I continue to struggle with this? And you may be tempted to question the sovereignty of God, but don't do that. Look back to Daniel chapter 4. Look to the entire book of Daniel. Look to the entirety of scriptures and, and know that he is indeed sovereign. As we saw last week, God does not always deliver us according to our wishes, but he does deliver us. And whatever it is that you're facing, know this. God is sovereign over that. We sing that song, God is sovereign over us. We could say God is sovereign over that, whatever that is. 